Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, I do want to actually begin in Ruth chapter 1. So you may want to just hold on to Corinthians and uh, turn back to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. The book of Ruth stands out like a diamond against the black backdrop of the days of the judges. Days when almost everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. The time of of cycles, of God's curse, His judgment, His chastisement. And then the people of Israel would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And God would send them a deliverer. And then they would go back into their idolatry. Go back into their rebellion against God, their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And then God's judgment would come again. Uh, When the book of Ruth opens, um, God's chastisement had been upon Israel. There was famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where Naomi uh, lived uh, with her husband. And because of the famine, Naomi and her husband uh, traveled out of the land of Israel to Moab. They lived in Moab and they had two sons and their sons took wives uh, from the Moabite women. And the name of one of them was Ruth. Now while Naomi was in Moab, her husband died uh, and uh, her, her two sons died. So these two Moabite women who, have mar- who had married Naomi's sons uh, now are without husbands. And Naomi goes back to Bethlehem. There is, the famine has been uh, removed in God's mercy. And Naomi encourages her daughter-in-laws to stay in Moab, that they might marry someone else. But look at what Ruth says to her mother-in-law Naomi in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. These words of Ruth really stand out. These words of devotion to Naomi. And in these words that we read of Ruth's devotion to Naomi, uh, we have an illustration of how our devotion to Christ is to be. We are to be just as devoted to Christ, if not more so, than Ruth was to Naomi. And that's exactly what we read from the lips of our Savior. In Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 37, Jesus speaks of His requirement for those who would follow after Him. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus Christ requires complete devotion to Him. Complete devotion. Now, upon understanding what Jesus requires of His followers, the devotion that we are to have toward Him, the question then arises. You know, then what does this have to, how does this bear upon our decisions when we decide if we're going to get married or not? Would it be better for a person not to be married so that they can give undivided devotion to Christ? Is that what is required of every Christian? Uh, if, if you are married when you are saved, should you now divorce so that you can give undivided devotion to Christ? These sorts of questions were coming up in the Corinthian church, maybe under the influence of some teachers who were teaching things that were contrary to Scripture. And this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to conclude this chapter, and the, the whole chapter is tied together uh, with these, these issues of should we marry or should we remain single? Um, and, and what about someone who has been married, someone who's betrothed to be married? How, are, how is a Christian to live? We come this morning to verses 32 through 40. I'm going to read those to us, uh, and then we will get into this passage together. Uh, please stand in honor of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God." This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Uh, we are in the middle of this chapter, and so what Paul says here is very closely connected to what he has said earlier in the chapter. So if you've not been with us for the previous sermons uh, on this chapter, I certainly would encourage you uh, to listen to those on sermon audio 
uh, that you might have the whole context uh, for this passage. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is responding to parts of a letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. If you look back at verse 1, in verse 1 Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... And then ESV puts it in quotation marks, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He seems to be quoting or paraphrasing uh, from this letter that the Corinthian church wrote to him. And in what he writes in this chapter, uh, he is majorly qualifying uh, this statement that they have made. If you go down to verse 25... In 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed. And so, he evidently here in verse 25 brings up something else in the letter. They had asked him about, or they had spoken about the betrothed. And so now he turns his attention to this. However, it is closely connected uh, to what he's already been talking about earlier in the chapter. Now, last time that we were in 1 Corinthians 7, we looked at verse 25 and following, uh, where Paul speaks about the betrothed. And I was a little frustrated when I did my study for the last passage, because in my resources, I could not find anything on Roman betrothal. I had things on Jewish betrothal, but not on Roman betrothal, which would be the betrothal practiced in Corinth. So I ordered a book, and I was very glad that before I could study this passage this week, that that book arrived, and so I was able to learn some things about Roman betrothal. When you learn about Roman betrothal, you learn that many marriages were arranged by parents. And some marriages were arranged far in advance. Sometimes parents arranged a marriage for their child when their child was quite young. Now while there are similarities between Roman betrothal and engagement in our culture, there clearly also are some significant differences. Uh, Yet, this section of 1 Corinthians 7, like the rest of the chapter, is very applicable to our lives as we will see. In our text, the Apostle Paul addresses the question whether a Christian who is betrothed to be married should proceed with getting married or not. Now, the presupposition in this is that the other person is a believer and that getting married would be lawful in God's eyes. As we will see in verse 39, a believer is only to marry another believer. Now, there evidently were some in the church who thought Christians should not get married or were being influenced by such teaching that Christians should not get married. Now, Paul has been correcting such thinking throughout this chapter. And in our text, the apostle teaches an advantage of being single. He does recognize a true advantage of being single and he teaches that advantage He also teaches in our text reasons to marry or not to marry. Certainly not an exhaustive list of reasons, but he does give us reasons to marry or not to marry. And then he concludes the whole chapter by speaking briefly of the permanence of marriage. Something that must be understood both by those considering marriage and by those who are already married. 
It is important for you to understand our text, no matter your marital status, in order that you might no longer think and live as the world does, but now would think and live biblically. As we've been seeing, the world has a very different view of these things uh, than the true view of these things that God gives to us in His Word. As we will see, there are ways that every Christian should apply this passage that we're going to study uh, to their life because this passage has to do with living lives of holiness. It has to do with pleasing the Lord. It has to do with devotion to our Lord and Savior. In the first section, we see an advantage of being single. An advantage of being single. Look with me beginning at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now, these verses that I just read speak of anxieties and being anxious about different things. Or, the New American Standard translates these words, Concern and concerned, all right? instead of anxieties and being anxious. The American Center uses the word concern and concerned. Sometimes these words can speak of a sinful attitude that is the opposite of trust. For example, Philippians 4.6 instructs us, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Philippians 4, 6 is clearly talking about sinful anxiety. Uh, the, the opposite of trusting our Heavenly Father. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When we do so, we are placing our trust in our Heavenly Father rather than being anxious. Now, other times, these words that are translated anxiety or concern, other times these words can speak of concern that is not sinful. For example, Philippians 2.20, For I have no one like him, as no one like Timothy, who will be generally concerned for your welfare, or generally anxious for your welfare. Paul here commends Timothy. Timothy is a great example because he has genuine concern for the welfare of the brethren in Philippi. So it's the same Greek word, but here it's used of something that is good in God's sight, a godly concern. Now, our text uses these words in this second way, to speak of concern that is not sinful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.32 that he wants to minimize the number of things that you are anxious about or the number of things that you are concerned about. He says the unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That is, how to please the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the believer's master, and the unmarried man is concerned about how to please his master. He's concerned about the things of his master. 
The unmarried man's life is very focused on his master's business. The apostle speaks more about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians 5. This concern to please our, our Lord, to, cons- to please our master. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, talking about whether we are in the body um, or we have died and gone home to be with the Lord in heaven. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says of Christians, we make it our aim to please Christ, knowing that we will stand before Christ uh, on the, the final day, and we will have to give an account to our Lord, to our Master, uh, re- regarding the work that He entrusted to us. We make it our aim to please Him, knowing we have to give an account Now, you can come back to our text. In our text, Paul makes a contrast between the believer who is single and the believer who is married. Unlike the man who is single, verse 33 says, the man who is married is concerned or anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. Now, it says that he's concerned about worldly things. Understand that in the Bible, sometimes the word worldly means being like the rebellious, godless world in which we live. We are not to be worldly in this sense. But that is not the meaning here in verse 33 when it says that the Christian who is married uh, is concerned about worldly things. Here, worldly things speaks of the things of life in this world. Things like providing food, clothing and shelter for your wife and children. Your relationship with your wife, which is a temporal relationship. Resolving conflicts with your wife. Pleasing your wife sexually. Showing special kindnesses to your wife. Taking your children to the doctor and the dentist and caring for them when they are sick. Playing with your children. Resolving your children's conflicts. Disciplining your children. Teaching your children daily responsibilities. Preparing things for your family when they break, and on and on the list goes. Paul says the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. Verse 34 says, and his interests are divided. And rightly so. Paul's not saying this is wrong. It is right the Christian man who is married that his interests are divided. Divided between the Lord and his wife, between the Lord and his family. God requires the Christian husband to be concerned how to please his wife. God requires the Christian husband to be concerned how to care for his wife and how to care for their children. Now, this does not mean that this man's highest loyalty and deepest love is divided. In Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30, 
One of the scribes came up to Jesus and asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. We are to give our ultimate loyalty to God. We are to give our deepest love to God, and there are to be no competitors. All right. We give exclusive, this, this love, this, this loyalty exclusively to God. All right. Paul is not talking about the married man uh, being divided in his highest loyalties, being divided in his deepest love, because that would be absolutely contrary to how we are to live. What Paul does mean when he says that the Christian married man's interests are divided He means that the Christian husband is very tied to his wife and children and cannot serve the Lord in all the ways that he could if he were single. He cannot be out of his home every evening doing ministry like he could if he were single. He cannot spend as much time in personal Bible reading and prayer as he could if he were single. He cannot be as fully involved in the meetings and ministries of his church as he could be if he were single. Many times he cannot drop everything to help someone in need because he would be dropping very important responsibilities towards his family. Yet as a single, he often could. Uh, He is not as free to go on ministry trips as he would be if he were single. And on and on we could go. Paul has spoken of the Christian man, and then he turns to the Christian woman in the second half of verse 34. Notice what he says here. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So, very similar to what he said about the Christian man. The single woman, Paul says, is concerned, quote, how to be holy in body and spirit. That word holy is important. It means set apart. God is holy. He is set apart. And we who are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ are likewise to be holy. We are to be set apart. Now, this word holy here... Uh, The single woman is concerned how to be holy in body and spirit. The word holy here stands in contrast to what was said about the married man earlier in verse 34. That his interests are divided. Now, the single Christian woman, her concern is to be set apart unto the Lord in body and spirit. The single woman is concerned with how to be consecrated to the Lord. In body and spirit, speaking speaking of in her whole person. Like the single man, the single woman is concerned how to be fully devoted to the Lord. She is focused on pleasing the Lord. Now Paul says, in contrast, the married woman, like the married man, is concerned about things of the world, how to please her husband. She's concerned how to, about making meals for her husband and children, washing their clothes, shopping for the family, taking care of your family's home, being a companion and helper to your husband, bathing your children, 
Getting up with your children in the middle of the night. Educating your children. Doing good to your husband. And on and on we could go. And it is right for the married Christian woman to be concerned with these things. Now what is the Apostle's point? Look at verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says that he's writing this for your benefit. He says that he's not writing this to put a restraint upon you. He says he's writing this to promote good order. Or the New American Standard, to promote what is appropriate. Or the Christian Standard Version, to promote what is proper. Now th- those words, to promote what, what is proper or appropriate, may pertain more to what he will say in the next verse than what he has already said. And Paul goes on in verse 35, he's writing, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul makes clear he he has not been giving a requirement that Christians never get married. He has not been forbidding marriage. Rather, the apostle has been pointing out the advantages of singleness for each Christian single's consideration. If you're single, your interests are undivided. You have more concerns when you're married. Because God requires you to be concerned about pleasing your spouse. He requires you to be concerned about caring for your family, taking care of your spouse and children. So we've been talking about an advantage of singleness, undivided devotion, undistracted devotion to the Lord, minimizing the number of concerns to give yourself to. The Christian single is not disadvantaged. Some Christian singles might think they are disadvantaged because they're not married. And Paul is saying, don't think that way because it's not the truth. The Christian single is not disadvantaged, far from it. They are advantaged in the way that Paul is speaking of here. And you need to recognize that and embrace that advantage. If Paul himself had to make the choice, he would choose to remain single, no question about it. And he wants Christian singles to make informed decisions when they're thinking about getting married or remaining single. Do not just get married because your parents want you to get married. Do not just get married because your friends or your siblings are getting married. Do not just get married because of an expectation that you will get married. For the Christian, there are real advantages of remaining single that Paul speaks of in this chapter. Now before we move on, let me point out to those who are married that we must be balanced in our devotion to our family on the one hand and in our devotion to ministry beyond our family. Verse 34 says the married person's interests are rightly to be divided. There are two errors to avoid. 
The first error to avoid is neglecting ministry beyond your family. Being so consumed with caring for your spouse and your children that you neglect ministry beyond your family. Understand that having a family does not exempt you from responsibilities toward your local church. The New Testament gives every Christian responsibilities toward our local church. We find some of those responsibilities in the one another's. Pray for one another, exhort one another, and so forth. Every Christian is given responsibilities from the Lord Jesus Christ to be lived out in the local church. And having a family does not exempt you from great commission responsibilities beyond your family. The Great Commission is for the whole church, not just for part of the church. Every Christian is to be involved together with the local church in the work of making disciples. This is for every Christian. So we have to avoid the error of neglecting ministry beyond our family, just being consumed with caring for our own family. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 teaches that every Christian has been gifted by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of edifying the body. The Holy Spirit gives some uh, the, the gift of proclaiming God's Word. He gives others the gift of leadership. He gives others the gift of teaching. He gives others the gift of serving. He gives others the gift of mercy. He gives others the gift of giving and so forth. But every Christian has been gifted by the Holy Spirit, as we will see in 1 Corinthians 12, for the purpose of edifying the body. Has been gifted for the common good. And so we as a Christian cannot neglect using that gift in the local church in favor of being consumed with caring for our own family. 1 Corinthians teaches that God has created an an interdependency between all the members of the body of Christ. Some members are like a hand, some are like a mouth, some are like a foot, and so forth. Every member is needed. Every member needs all the other members. And so, if you neglect using your gift in the local church in favor of just caring for your family, your church will be unhealthy. Your church will lack something that God has provided for that church. We're to be responsible to use the gifts God has given to us for the edification of the church. And we can't say, well, I have a wife to take care of, I have nine kids to take care of, I can't do that right now. Later on, after the kids grow up, we can't say that. So this is challenging for those who have families. That we would be faithful in ministering in our local church, that we'd be faithful in participating in the Great Commission, while at the same time showing the proper care and concern for our spouse and children. It's challenging. And this is why Paul is being real with Christian singles. Married Christians have double responsibilities. And Paul is saying, if you're not married, consider singleness. Because it will minimize your concerns. It will enable you to be more focused. Consider it. 
The second error to avoid is neglecting your family in favor of ministering beyond your family. Too many people have sacrificed their families on the altar of Christian ministry. Abraham's offering of Isaac was a test, not an example. There's nothing spiritual in sacrificing your spouse and sacrificing your children for the sake of ministry. In fact, it's sin, and it actually disqualifies you from being an elder or deacon. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, we have qualifications for elders. And one of the qualifications is that he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If you neglect caring for your family, Paul says, you're not qualified to be an elder. So, we're not to sacrifice our families for the sake of ministry beyond them. Similarly, deacon qualifications. 1 Timothy 3.12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. If you're not faithful in that, you can't be a deacon. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, gives instructions to shepherds, that is, to the elders of the local church. And the instruction in 1 Peter 5, verse 3b is, but being examples to the flock. If you are married, and if you have children, then as an elder, you are to set an example for the congregation of loving your wife as Christ loved the church. You are to set an example to your church of faithfully bringing up your children in the training and the admonition of the Lord. The idea of sacrificing your family for the sake of ministry is so contrary Utterly contrary to the scriptures. Now some Christians neglect their families, not in favor of ministry, but out of laziness and selfishness. Do you know that our text assumes that you understand that God requires the Christian who is married to be devoted to pleasing one's spouse and serving one's family. Paul doesn't say that you can just neglect that so that you can be, give undivided devotion to the Lord. No, he says, your interests are divided. And rightly so. This is the way it, it is, and it ought to be. We're not to be lazy when it comes to pleasing our spouse. We're, we're not to neglect our, our family out of self-centeredness. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is very serious language. Honor your wife so that God will hear your prayers. Provide for your family. If you do not, you're worse than an unbeliever. 
So this text assumes, we can say it teaches, that we are to be devoted to our spouse and to our children. B.B. Warfield is a good example of the balance that God's word requires of those who are married. B.B. Warfield is known best for having served the last 34 years of his life as a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. That seminary is down the road from here. It's not the same seminary it was when B.B. Warfield was there. There was a a very significant division uh, very soon after the ministry of B.B. Warfield. That seminary is now liberal. The conservatives went and started Westminster Theological Seminary down the, 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 the highway. B.B. Warfield's known best for having served the last 34 years of his life as a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Before he became a professor, he married Annie. And the newlyweds moved to Germany for B.B. Warfield's theological studies. While walking together in the mountains, Mr. and Mrs. Warfield were caught in a violent thunderstorm. Annie suffered severe trauma to her nervous system from which she never fully recovered. Over time, she became increasingly incapacitated. During their years at Princeton, it was observed that B.B. Warfield gave his his wife, quote, his constant attention and care. O.T. Alice observed himself and then and wrote his observations. O.T. Alice observed, I used to see them walking together. And the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. During the years spent at Princeton, he rarely, if ever, was absent for any length of time. And of course, there'd be many opportunities for a professor like Warfield to go and lecture um, in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. But he didn't do that. J. Gresham Machen recalled that Mrs. Warfield became bedridden and Dr. Warfield would read to her several hours each day. According to most accounts, Dr. Warfield almost never ventured away from his wife's side for more than two hours at a time. Kim Riddlebarger wrote more recently, quote, The Warfield may have been known to many as a tenacious fighter. That was fighting against theological error. The Warfield may have been known to many as a tenacious fighter. The compassion he directed toward his wife, Annie Kincaid Warfield, demonstrates a capacity for tenderness and caring that is in its own right quite remarkable. Now why do I bring up B.B. Warfield? Because he is known for both caring for his wife and his ministry as a theologian. O.T. Alice wrote, quote, He did not allow his wife's illness to hinder him in his work. He was intensely active with voice and pen. So while he would not leave his, her bedside for more than two hours at a time, while he was constantly caring for her at the same time, he was very productive in his ministry at the seminary. Indeed, he was one of the most influential Reformed theologians in American history, writing numerous important works and teaching seminary students with excellence throughout his years at Princeton. B.B. Warfield's voice was one of the loudest, most knowledgeable, and clearest in defending the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture at a time when it was being fiercely attacked and churches were giving way to theological liberalism. 
And his writings will forever edify the church. Though not every married Christian is called to care for a bedridden spouse, and few are called to a highly public ministry like Warfield's, every married Christian is called, like Warfield, to please their spouse and serve their family, and at the same time to be about their master's business beyond their own family, in a balanced and faithful way. So don't think that you have to live up to Warfield's theological rigor. God's only given certain gifts to certain individuals. But we need to follow his example of balance. His interests were rightly divided and given to both his wife and to his master, his Lord. Now before we move on to the next part of our text... I am compelled to respond to Roman Catholicism's misuse of our text. Roman Catholicism requires their priests to be single. Roman Catholic priests are not allowed to marry. Now that reflects a misapplication of the verses that we have read in 1 Corinthians 7. And it fuels homosexuality and sexual abuse among its priests. The prohibition against priests being married clearly goes against Scripture. There are two offices in the church. The office of elder and the office of deacon. And Scripture anticipates that the majority of elders and deacons will be married. In the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3.2, we read, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife not requiring that the elder be married, but that if he is married, he's a one-woman man. That his eyes are not straying from his wife onto other women. He's faithful to his wife. The assumption here is most elders will be married. 1 Timothy 3.12, qualifications for deacons. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. The same thing, not, again, not requiring that a deacon be married, but it anticipates that most deacons will be married and requires those who are married to be one women men. To conclude from our text that certain Christians like clergy should never marry is a serious misunderstanding of our text. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, is extolling an advantage of being single for personal consideration. But as he states in verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He's not giving a requirement not to lay any restraint upon you. Well, having communicated in the first part of our text an advantage of being single, Paul moves on to giving us reasons to marry or not to marry in verses 36 through 38. Let's see a reason to marry in verse 36. Paul says, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Now notice that this verse talks about his betrothed. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed. Literally, toward his virgin, referring to a woman. It is feminine in the original language. 
Now, the 1995 New American Standard interprets this as the man's daughter for whom he has arranged a marriage. So, New American Standard translates it, his virgin daughter. And they put daughter in italics, indicating that word daughter is not in the original language, but they're adding it to give you what they believe uh, is the sense of the original. And the Legacy Standard Bible follows that, his virgin daughter. Now, to be consistent with this, they follow a weakly supported textual variant at the end of verse 36. Notice how in the ESV, at the end of verse 36, it says, Let them marry. The the two who are betrothed to be married, let them marry. But, New American Standard follows a weakly supported variant in the manuscripts, and they translate it, Let her marry. So, in the New American Standard, they're, under, they're interpreting this as talking about, should a man let his daughter, who is, whom he has betrothed to be married to someone else, should he let her be married to him, or should he not let her marry? All right. Because of these exegetical decisions made by the translators of the New American Standard and followed by the Legacy Standard Bible, they translate some of the other words in the verse differently. Now, I I don't agree with how the New American Standard interprets this verse. There is much stronger evidence in the manuscripts for the reading, let them marry, at the end of verse 36, not let her marry. And it is quite irregular to refer to a father's daughter as his virgin. That's that's literally how it's worded here, his virgin. It's very irregular to refer to a man's daughter that way, his virgin. And the context says nothing about a father-daughter relationship. So it is better to follow the ESV and understand verse 36 to speak of a man and a woman who are betrothed to marry one another. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, This term, not behaving properly, used in the context of male-female relationships has sexual connotations. The conduct in mind uh, need not be fornication. Paul would speak clearly of that as sin. What we see is this man is starting to act on his sexual desires toward his betrothed, desires that are mentioned next in this verse. He's either acting on these in his mind or beginning to act on these in his outward behavior. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, his passions are his desires to marry his betrothed and to enjoy together the privileges of marriage. If his his passions are strong, and it has to be. In other words, he feels that he has to marry his betrothed. Paul says, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Now, there were false teachers who were saying that would be sin to get married. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage. Paul warned, there will be false teachers who forbid marriage. But Paul says... In this instance, let this man do as he wishes. 
Let them marry. He says, it is no sin. The truth is that such a person does nothing wrong by marrying his betrothed. What would be sin would be to give into temptation and sleep with his betrothed. That would be sin. Paul says back in verse 9b, he says, For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And he's saying something similar here. If you are engaged to be married, and you have a strong desire to be married, then the Apostle Paul advises you to go through with it. Now, there are some assumptions here that I have not stated yet in the sermon. Let me state two. One, the first assumption is that it is wise to marry this kind of a person to whom he is betrothed. And the second assumption is that it is wise to get married at this time. Now, Paul's concern in chapter 7 is not to give comprehensive teaching on whom you should marry. But rather, his concern is to teach on the subject of whether Christians should marry at all. So certainly there are important things to consider. You don't want to just marry any believer. Yes. Right. You have wisdom in deciding if you're going to marry a specific individual. Men should be looking for women whose beauty comes from their spirit that has been conformed to the image of Christ. Women should marry men who love God with all of their heart and are submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so forth. There are other things to consider when you are considering marriage. Is this the right time? If you are a man, and you're not currently able to financially support yourself, let alone yourself and a wife, uh, this is not the right time for you to be married. Because with marriage comes the responsibility to provide for your family. You're not to continue to depend on your parents. You are now responsible to provide. There's other things to, to take into consideration. In verse 36, Paul gives a legitimate reason to marry. And then in verse 37, he gives a reason not to marry. Look at verse 37. He says, But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Paul says, this man has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, which means to keep her a virgin, which basically means to not marry her. He's determined that in his heart, he's determined this in his heart, not to marry her, to keep her a virgin. All right. Either to put the betrothal on hold indefinitely or to break off the betrothal altogether. Now we see that this man is firmly established in his heart about this, that he will not marry the woman. He's not doing this in order to please someone else. Rather, this is truly what he desires in his heart of hearts before God. Being, Paul also says, being under no necessity, but having his desires under control. In other words, his passions are not so strong that he feels he has to get married. He may experience sexual desire, but he has no problem keeping that sexual desire in check. Paul says if such a man decides not to get married, he will do well. 
When Paul says that, he has in mind the advantages to singleness in verses 32-35. That undivided, undistracted devotion to the Lord. Minimizing the number of concerns. Being focused in pleasing the Lord and being about his master's business. So Paul says this man will do well if he does not get married. Now what we see here is that it is not wrong to break off a betrothal or an engagement. That's basically what this amounts to. This man is betrothed to be married to this woman. And Paul is saying, it's okay not to marry. There are reasons not to marry. It is okay to break off a betrothal. It is okay to break off an engagement. There are legitimate reasons to do so. So it is wrong to tell someone who is engaged that God does not permit them to call off the engagement. I know a man who called himself a Christian, who was a seminary student, and had told his fiance this. His name was Carlo. And his fiance also called herself a Christian, and she was a friend of my wife Esther. This was many, many years ago. Shortly before the wedding, Carlo's fiancé had legitimate misgivings about proceeding with marrying Carlo. And Carlo told her that she could not break off the engagement because that would be breaking her word. And so she didn't break it off. I met Carlo the day before the wedding. And when I interacted with Carlo that weekend, and later on, when we made an emergency trip there to try to counsel them, I found him to be proud, I found him to be self-righteous, I found him to be corrupt in his heart. Carlo's fiancé should have called off the wedding when she had those misgivings. She should not have listened to Carlo when he said, if you break this off, you will be breaking your word. It was a very foolish decision to continue with their plans to get married. Several months after the wedding, Carlo found out that his wife went out for dinner with another man. And then he claimed that that gave him biblical grounds for divorce. That that amounted to adultery, having dinner with another man. And he initiated a divorce. And less than a year after the wedding, the divorce was finalized. Our text says... If a Christian is engaged to be married, yet does not have a compelling reason to get married, and has a legitimate deep-seated desire not to get married, he does well not to marry. Paul goes on in verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Will do even better in terms of what Paul has discussed in this passage Minimizing the number of concerns in one's life, living in an undivided devotion to the Lord. In that sense, he does better. Well, that concludes the section of this chapter that concerns the betrothed. Paul then, in the last two verses of the chapter, concludes the whole chapter by speaking of the permanence of marriage. The permanence of marriage is something that is important to be understood both by those who are considering marriage... You know, you didn't know what you're considering, the kind of commitment that you're considering making, 
It also is important to be understood by those who are married, to understand the commitment that you've already made. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And that's true of husbands as well. That a husband is bound to his wife as long as she lives. We see in the Bible that marriage is a permanent covenant as long as both partners are alive. It's an until death do us part covenant. So Paul goes on in verse 39 and says, But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord means only to another Christian. Scripture does not record Paul ever using the term Christian. We might say only to another Christian. But Paul never used in Scripture that term Christian. It's used actually only a few times in the New Testament period. Rather, Paul spoke of Christians in other ways, including people who are in the Lord. As in Romans 16.11, Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of narcissists. A Christian is someone who is in the Lord. That is, someone who is joined to the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace and by faith in Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Christ, united to Christ in a, in a union that is indestructible. Paul says, She is free to be married after her husband dies, to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. Only to someone who is in the Lord. Only to another believer. Paul continues in verse 40, Yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is. Why is she happier? Because she has fewer concerns like Paul talked about. Why is she happy? Be happier? Because she can live in undivided devotion to the Lord. The assumption is that is her great de desire, is to live in devotion to the Lord. So Paul says, in my judgment... She's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It is possible that the letter from the Corinthian church talked about people who were teaching strange ideas who claimed to have the Spirit of God. We do not know. But for whatever reason, Paul says here, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul uses the language of modesty here. There's no question in his mind that he has the Spirit of God. He knows this with certainty, that he has the Spirit. In fact, it is by the Spirit of God that the Apostle is writing all that he includes in his letter. And this is why the Corinthians should accept all that the Apostle writes in this letter, is because he's speaking by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle is imparting true wisdom from God, and we would do well to listen to it and to follow it. Well, in light of all that we have seen, I have a question for you. If you are a Christian and single, if you are a Christian and a single and a man, is verse 32b true of you? Look at 32b. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And if you are a Christian single woman, is the middle of verse 34 true of you? And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. 
how to be holy in body and spirit. Paul is talking here in both verses to the man and to the woman about an undivided, undistracted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, are these true of you? If you cannot say these are fully true of you, then let me say you are wasting your singleness. And this passage should be a wake-up call that greatly challenges you to use your singleness well for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the time, Christian singles, to put a special priority on communion with God in His Word and in prayer. Christian singles, this time in your life is the time to put a special priority on fellowship with your local church. This time in your life is the time to put a special priority on being discipled, on being equipped, on being trained. This is the time in your life to put a special priority on discipling others as you are being discipled. This is the time of your life to put a special priority on serving in your local church. This is the time in your life to put a special priority on personal evangelism. If you need direction, reach out to an elder to equip you. That is our God-given responsibility. Ephesians 4 says that God has given to the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So this is your desire to grow in, in using the time that God has given you as a single in service to the Lord Jesus Christ in the local church. But you need to be equipped. Reach out to an elder. It's our job to equip you. Reach out to an older church member to disciple you. Reach out to a deacon to involve you in ministry. Deacons have oversight over some of the ministries in the church that are are, are geared towards the physical needs of the congregation. Part of their responsibility is to involve the members in the work of service. So reach out to a deacon to involve you in ministry. Reach out to our evangelism coordinator about how you can be involved in our evangelism teams and how, how you can learn to do evangelism uh, as being a part of those teams. But more than all of this, cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Call out to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, You have redeemed me with Your precious blood. I am Yours by redemption. I want to serve You with all that I am. I want to make the best use of this time in my life when I am single for your kingdom and for your glory. Here I am. Use me for your glory. Use me for the edification of your church. Use me to reach others with the gospel. Here I am. Use me. And if you are looking for a spouse, then not only seek to live right now in undivided devotion to the Lord as a single. But if you're looking for a spouse, look for someone who is also doing this, who is also living in undivided devotion to the Lord. This is what a Christian single should be doing, so do not settle for anything less in a future spouse. 
where, where does true undivided devotion to the Lord come from? And when I ask this, I'm not just thinking for the single in the ways that Paul is speaking of. I'm thinking of devotion like what we saw that Ruth had for Naomi. I'm thinking of devotion like what Jesus calls for in Matthew 10 that we looked at earlier. Where does true, undivided devotion to the Lord come from? Loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. You need to understand that it's not manufactured. You need to understand that it's not just added on to your life. It is produced in you by the Spirit of God in God's work of salvation. The Gospel tells us that God in His grace and mercy before the foundation of the world chose individuals for Himself. He chose a people for Himself that He would redeem. We're told that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of His people. He came to save His people from their sins. There, was a prom- there were promises in the Old Testament of this coming Savior. Promises of the salvation that God would give through the coming Savior. In Ezekiel 36, there was this promise. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, that you might walk according to my commandments. That you might walk according to my ways. You have been blaspheming my holy name, but for the sake of my holy name, I I am going to provide salvation. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to change your nature. I'm going to make you into someone who lives for my glory. And so when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was sure that he had a place in the coming kingdom of of God because he was a student of the law of God. He, He sought to follow the law of God And Jesus says to Nicodemus, this older ruler of the Jews, this older student of the scriptures and teachers of the law, Jesus told him, unless you are born of the Spirit and water, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus was bringing Nicodemus face to face with the nature of God's saving work. God's saving work is not, okay, I'm going to give you a new way to live, go live it. God's salvation is about a spiritual heart transplant. It's about God in His grace intervening in your life when you are dead in trespasses and sins, when you're following the course of this world, when you're following the, the, the spirit of the power of the air, who is at work in the sons of disobedience. God intervenes in His grace and His mercy. He brings you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God works through the good news. The good news is the news of Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins and His triumphant resurrection on the third day. God doesn't give us instructions for how to change our life. He gives us good news. 
of what God has done to save us. And it's for us to believe that good news. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, salvation is about God intervening in His grace and His mercy in your heart and life and giving you new life. No one can choose to, to, to be born into this world. We, we, we've just rejoiced at, at the birth of Ian Chu. But did Ian Chu decide to be conceived? Did Ian Chu decide, decide to be born? Absolutely not. That's the point in John. It's by the will of the Holy Spirit. It's by the grace and the mercy of God. It's about God intervening in hearts and lives. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know those good deeds that you do? You know those works of the law that you apply yourself to? They come from a corrupt heart. They may look good on the inside, but they come from a corrupt heart. You are corrupted by sin. And so your confidence in your righteousness is a false confidence. It's a confidence in something that gives you no standing with God. And unless you are born of the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you will suffer the penalty for your sins in, in eternal judgment, in the lake of fire, which Jesus warned of repeatedly in his teaching. But he holds out the good news to Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him, that just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, that those who looked upon the serpent would live, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that those who believe in him will not perish. We deserve God's judgment because we have sinned against God. We have rebelled against Him. We've broken His law. And so we deserve the judgment of God. God had given instructions to Moses when the plague was going forth. The plague was serpents, poisonous serpents that were biting the Israelites and killing them with their poison. Moses was to put a bronze serpent on a pole. The bronze serpent represented that curse, that judgment from God upon his people. But there was coming one who would be put up on a pole, up upon a cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the bronze serpent just looked forward to Christ, the one who would be lifted up, that those who looked to him would be saved. You see... We're not saved by our efforts. We're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. Upon the cross, He became a curse for us. He suffered the curse in our place. He paid the penalty for us that we who believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And so in John 3, we're told, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The gospel calls upon every man, woman, boy, and girl to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ in faith. Trusting in Him as your Savior. Trusting in Him as your Lord to follow Him now as your Master the rest of your days. And the one who believes in the Son can know that they have been born of the Spirit. 
The one who believes can know that they've been born of God. If they hadn't been born of God, they wouldn't see Christ as they're seeing Him now. If they hadn't been born of God, they wouldn't be turning from their sin to put their faith and trust in Christ. It all comes together. Salvation is all of God. It's about His regenerating work. It's about Christ's work upon the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. It's about the grace of God. It's all received through faith in Jesus. That's the response that is called for by God. That's the response that Christ calls for. Where does undivided devotion come from? It's not manufactured. It's not self-effort. Undivided devotion is rooted in that new heart. Undivided devotion is, is rooted in that new nature that is given in salvation. And that undivided devotion is not an attempt to please God in order to gain His favor. That undivided devotion is a response to the grace of God, recognizing that God has graciously given me His favor. He has saved me from all of my sins. He's given me new life in Christ. And so now my response to Christ for what He has done for me, my response is now to live in undivided devotion to Him. The rest of my days for His glory, for His honor alone. That's where devotion comes from. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, over the last several weeks we have seen a lot in 1 Corinthians 7. Some of these things have been hard to understand. We didn't read the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. But these first recipients of this chapter, they they knew very well what they had written to him. They would have understood it clearly. We need help because we don't live in that time and place. We thank you, Father, that you have been helping us by your Spirit uh, to understand the meaning and application of this passage. It can seem strange to us because it's addressing questions that have not been on our minds. Our mindset has been so different from that of the Corinthians. But there is timeless truth here that very much pertains to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would lead each one here in applying this passage in appropriate ways to their hearts and lives. And thinking of this idea of living a life that is pleasing to Christ. Living a life that is holy in body and spirit. Living in devotion to the Lord. And at the same time, if we're married, giving proper devotion and care to our family. Oh Lord, we, we are so prone to, even though we desire these things, we desire to live according to what you've, you've laid out for us in your word. Lord, the flesh is weak. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. We have the desire to, to fully live for you. But we're in the middle of a spiritual battle. We find it hard. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to live lives for your glory, whether we are single or we are married, whether we've been married in the past or, or not. We pray, Father, that you would help each one of us in our current context to live for your glory lives of proclaiming Christ, lives of edifying the brethren, lives of showing Christ to our spouse, to our children. Oh Lord, help us in these things.
And for this, we will give you the thanks and the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.